Hi, and welcome to Serious About Sustainability, the podcast series brought to you by Mitsubishi Electric's Ikadan Air Source Heat Pump. I'm Max Halliwell from Ikadan, and you're listening to a series of podcasts all about renewable home heating. We'll be covering a range of topics from the perspective of UK homeowners, self-builders, contractors, and housing associations. Our show today is called UK Net Zero, Buildings for a Sustainable Future. My guest is Julie Hirigoyen, Chief Executive of UK Green Building Council. Welcome, Julie. Great to see you. How are you? Very good, thanks. Max, how are you? Yeah, very good. So this is the first one of these that um, I'm doing remotely. So you've got the privilege of being our first remote guest on a series about sustainability. So let's see how this goes. I'm hoping I've got a small angry dog, which I've locked away on the other side of the <laughs> house. Um, I'm hoping she doesn't disturb us. And uh I live on a cul-de-sac and sometimes the kids come out. We're recording this at go-home time for the children. So uh, so if we get disturbed, it's just a bit of natural background. So how's your environment? Actually, it's pretty good. Kids are, are at school, which is a blessing. And um, an angry dog, although not quite so angry, she's a six-month pup, is downstairs, hopefully asleep. So we should oh, be okay. Excellent. 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 <laughs> okay, well, we've got lots to talk about over this next half hour or so. Um, but to start with, obviously, you're Chief Executive of the UK Green Building Council. And um, yeah. some of some of the audience will know um, what, what you do. Um, but some of the audience, this will be a, a, a new company. So can you just uh, explain what UK Green Building Council does in the UK? Yes, of course. So we're, we're actually a charity. We're about 13 years old. Um, and we were established to bring consistency and a, a sort of common place and a common voice to um, all things to do with sustainability in the built environment. Um, we are above all a membership organization. So we have 530 plus members that span the whole of the built environment value chain from institutional investors in real estate to property developers and house builders um, to engineers, architects, product manufacturers, agents, and everyone in between. And we also have lots of universities, government bodies, local authorities, and so on. So we're really um, focused on convening the various different stakeholders together to to enable um, a built environment that, that allows people and planet to thrive. We're really focused across both environmental and socioeconomic issues. Um, we see those as inextricably linked. And, um, and our work consists of you know, government policy um, uh, influencing and advocacy work, uh, as well as working with the businesses in our membership to give them the, the tools and guidance that they need to go further faster. So it's a lot about shared knowledge, education, training, resources, um, and all with a view to, uh, to a better built environment. Oh, fantastic! That's a that's a great overview. So, will you so will you actually help government set and guide them on policy, say on domestic housing and where we should be going? Do you have an influence um, and help them help them on their decision making process? Yeah, um, that's an interesting way of putting it. I mean, we we try to influence very hard, <laughs> uh, both national and local government policy, wherever we can. We've got really good set of relationships across Westminster and Whitehall and, and also with um, a growing number of city, combined city authorities and local authorities. I'd say uh, on the former, so in, in the national government policy front, you know, 
as with all these things, it's it's really challenging. Um, there's a wide range of government departments that touch on relevant policy to do with buildings. Um, and unfortunately, um, they're not always as joined up as one might want, want them to be. But we do a lot of work um, in terms of public affairs and um, policy consultation responses and really trying to get the voice of the industry and the experience of the industry um, to bear in policy making terms um, and, and to, to, to encourage uh, consistent and, as I say, long term policy making. Um, I'd say we vary in our success with that. Um, of course, all governments have, have their own agenda, and um, there are sometimes conflicting priorities within their their agenda and so on. But um, but yeah, we do we do a lot of that kind of work. Right. Okay, so the title of what we're discussing today, the title of this podcast is Buildings for a Sustainable Future. So with the time that we've got, we're going to be very much focusing on um, a net, the net zero and buildings. And we've got, I've got a few questions to ask you in terms of UK buildings and net zero, because I don't think it's, as a, it's, a, it's a term that's been banded around a lot now. Everyone's talking about net zero. And yeah. I've got a feeling you might be a really good person to explain to the audience in terms of buildings actually what actually is net zero carbon for buildings obviously we've got the construction side and we've got the operational side should we start on the construction side about in terms of what that actually means yeah let me just take a step back for a second and then come back to the construction point but um you know just to, just to and make the segue, I suppose, between the, the last two questions. I mean, the, the term zero carbon for buildings actually has some um, particular connotation in the UK because until 2015, we did have zero carbon buildings for new buildings policy. Um, it was introduced. It, it was introduced back in the late 2000s. We were meant to have uh, all new homes being zero carbon by 2016 and all commercial buildings shortly thereafter. And that was, of oh, yes. course, yep. pulled I remember that. Um, back in 2015 to, to the surprise and, and, and frankly, fury of many, um, because there'd been the best part of 10 years in, in kind of leading up to that. And I think that the marketplace was quite well placed to start delivering that. However, um, the term was used quite um, differently to that which is now being used under this kind of net zero carbon buildings definition. And um, we, for that reason, at UKGBC convened a whole group of uh, industry bodies and stakeholders and trade associations and, and member businesses together to develop a new definition, actually, of, the, of what net zero carbon buildings should mean in the UK context. And one of the biggest... Um, uh, deviations between the two, so that from the previous zero carbon policy and our kind of latest definition, um, was around the fact that our latest definition includes all energy uses within a building um, and also includes upfront construction carbon or embodied carbon emissions. So when I say all energy uses in a building, um, building regulations currently only cover what's called regulated energy uses. Um, so that wouldn't include all sorts of things like small power loads, um, cooking appliances, and, and those sorts of things. Um, so there is quite a big difference in terms of the scope of emissions that are covered, even by those two terms, which are exactly the same. And this is where some of the confusion comes in, is that the scope of what is in and what is out in respect of uh, a net zero carbon definition is absolutely crucial. 
um, to, to be able to compare like for like, if you see what I mean. Um, so in that framework definition that we published in 2019, we highlighted three distinct um, scopes or definitions in their own right. One for new construction, one for buildings in operation, so existing buildings um, that, that are being occupied, and one for the whole life cycle of a building, so net zero whole life. We didn't go so far with that last one as defining exactly what needed to be done when, because it's a much more challenging prospect. But we did flesh that out quite um in some detail for both new construction and existing buildings in operation. Okay, that's given us an overview. So let's just go back to one of the points you made. Um, it was a point of frustration for, for many in the industry. Um, you mentioned 2016, that we mm. should have already been building net zero homes. And now looking at the technology that we've got, I've been around the industry for about 15 years now, and looking mm. at what's achievable both in fabric, uh, technology, um, and construction, what a frustrating thing to have gone through. The build-up was there, and now we're on this train again. Uh, we've got the future yep. homes consultation, changing the building regulations. Why are we going so slowly, do you think? I would love to have the answer to that. I, I mean, I think the, the, the key answer would have to be, um, you know, that there must have been a strong lobbying voice from, particularly at that time, the, you know, large volume house builders. Um, who were pushing back on some of that um, that regulation, um, you know, on the on the basis of it being, you know, for, for whatever reasons, whether they're struggling with viability or profit margins and and so on and so forth. In actual fact, what had been proven in the previous ten years was that the costs of achieving that zero carbon um, standard for new homes had dropped dramatically. I mean, almost halved. Um, so, so I think we were very close. Um, and, you know, of course, there was a change in um, political, um, you know, in the administration in 2015. And so different differing priorities coming in. Um, the zero carbon homes was a coalition policy. Um, and then we suddenly had a, you know, a conservative majority government. So, um, so, so, you know, political priorities, some industry pushback. Um, but you're quite right. We lost the best part of 10 years. Um, because if the zero, if the future home standard doesn't come in until 2025, which we still think is probably too late, um, it could, it could have come in earlier, 2023 or 24. Um, you know, that's 10 years that will have, that will have slipped by, um, of new homes being built to standards that are nowhere near that stringent and therefore will need retrofitting within the next decade um, in order for us to meet our net zero carbon targets. So this is a good example of a lack of joined up policy making, in, in my view. It's a real shame because those properties that have been built since 2016, which will now be in our infrastructure for the next 100 or so years, is that right? The average home is going to be sat around for that sort of time period. And as you say, it's either going to have to- Well, we should be. Yeah. It should be. It should be. <laughs> so now that, that those homes, as you say, that's a very good point. You're going to have to, to bring them up to standard. They would probably have to be retrofitted. So as you say, it's almost um, it's almost double the cost. I mean, you make the point about um, joined up thinking. One of the things I saw in the news um, it's only in the last 24, 48 hours was the change in policy in terms of the electric car subsidies. 
So on one side, we're saying, okay, transportation, et cetera, they want us to move across to cleaner fuels. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, but um, the EV grants have been cut significantly mm. and capped. Um, again, is this a lack of joined up thinking between departments? Is it quite, is it quite a difficult thing to do for government to think about um, transport and housing at the same time? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you're quite right to flag that. There's all sorts of examples like that, which are, you know, not least coal mines in various different parts of the country and so on. Um, I think uh, on on the sort of subsidies and incentives, there seems to be an approach that says once the market demand is strong enough for a particular green product or service, if it has been subsidized to get it up to that point, then it's time to drop the subsidy or the or the incentive or the you know the the, the carrot as it were. Um, okay. I, I, you know, I would argue. I mean, we're still doing. We're still providing huge subsidies to the um, heavy fossil fuel sectors like oil and gas. So it doesn't quite tally um, that you know they're not quite being tarred with t- treated with the same um, brush, if you like. And so, so I think you know really what we what we're talking about is the biggest challenge of our time. Um, you know, the climate emergency isn't just any emergency; it requires us to change the way we do pretty much everything forevermore. And if we are stimulating uh, accelerated demand for certain products and services, and that's working, then let's carry on rather than stop. Um, because because we need to we need every tool we you know every trick in the in the in the pack as it were for for, for this particular transition. So I think um, you know there are there are positive signs that from government that you know some of these things are finally back on the table and are being considered like um, existing home retrofit um, you know green travel. Um, you know, and, and public transport um, provision and so on. But there are also conflicting signs that they're not being thought of as holistically and systemically, in a sense, in terms of how one affects the other as, as we need them to be. The Mitsubishi Electric Ikadan air source heat pump switched from fossil fuels like oil, LPG and storage heaters to clean, renewable home heating. Visit ultraquietecadan.co.uk for more information. Ecadan, serious about sustainability. Okay, let's just t- just pick up on um, one of the points on operation before we go forward onto um, electricity and the fuels we're using. Um, I spoke to a couple of colleagues and I said I was going to be interviewing you know, or talking to you this afternoon. And one of them asked me, he said, oh, could you ask Julie about um, a net zero home in terms of operation? Is that deemed as a self-sufficient home? In terms of net zero, so does mm. that mean the home stands can stand alone? So, for example, my view is if you had a house with enough PV on it, and you had battery storage, and you say had a heat pump, and you've mm. got a circular process there of it being able to collect enough electricity, um, or this definition of if you're importing zero carbon electricity from a renewable source. Are they both the same thing? No, they're not. They're not quite the same thing. I mean, they're they're, they're both great, um, but they need to be considered, um, you know, slightly separately. So, to your point on the kind of self-sufficient home, I mean, that's the ultimate kind of ideal. 
is that, uh, uh, you know, coming back to our points about a net zero carbon building, that, that it's a highly efficient building in the first place. So it's really, really, um, you know, non-profligate in its use of energy, both heat and, and electricity. Um, and, uh, and, and it generates as much of that which it needs uh, through clean sources on site. But very few existing buildings will be able to get to that if you think, you know, um, both um, both existing homes and, and the homes that we have, which are, which are quite old and drafty and even, even new build, um, you know, depending on the format of the home, we may, ne- may not necessarily have sufficient capacity on site to generate all of it for all of its needs um so so the so ideally it would um, but if it can't it will then be importing some energy uh, from elsewhere ideally uh, renewable energy um okay. and, and 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 being sufficient and, and self-sufficient on that and if there's any sort of residual carbon from anywhere both on-site or off-site sources so it can't quite get all of its Heat, for example, procured from renewable sources or what have you, then then it would need to offset um, the remainder, the residual. So going back to our um, previous bit of the conversation around construction versus new operation, when you're building a new building, whatever building type that is, um, you're you're really talking about um, you know offsetting. You're, you're basically trying to establish the whole designing for the whole life cycle of the building, um, reducing. The impact at all of those different stages, and then you're calculating the total amount of embodied emissions in the building upfront, and you're offsetting however much that ends up that ends up being through good, credible, reliable offsets. But oh, for an so existing building, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, likelihood is you're un- at this point in time, you're in building a new building, you're unlikely to be able to do that with a zero carbon footprint of your materials whatsoever. Um, so, so yeah, you, you would end up offsetting some of that in due course of, of course, we'd want to eliminate the use of offsets, but that requires us to be completely decarbonizing all our building materials, um, over the next, you know, few decades. Um, so there is still probably a use of ops of, of good credible offsets for new construction, but for an existing building, coming back to your previous question, um, you, you are, you're basically measuring everything that the building uses. Um, you know, it, 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 in its it, in its usage, but both the heat and the electricity and, and all of that, you're trying to generate that as much as you can, or buy it from renewable, credible places. And then, if there's if you're not able to do that for whatever reason, you are offsetting. But you probably should be able to buy in more easily than retrofit on, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. So with so with renewable electricity. Now, this is a real hot topic at the moment, okay? Um, a lot of people are talking about this across the industry. Um, so we've got renewable electricity. Um, as you know, mm-hmm. our grid is decarbonizing. Incredible. I love that little app called Grid Carbon. Um, yeah. It was last weekend I saw the number 77 uh, grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. I think that's the lowest mm-hmm. I've seen because it's really windy and it's really sunny. So renewable electricity, you know, we're an island. We're going to be generating. I believe that our grid is going to become net zero itself by 2035. So so the electricity will be incredibly clean. So anything we add to the grid between now and then gets cleaner and cleaner. And this brings up the topic of hydrogen in terms of heating. Now, 
I saw, I saw some stats the other day saying that if you were to heat a home using even green hydrogen, so you're using even clean electricity to split the water molecule, so I'm getting all scientific here, I was a chemist as a, as a youngster, compared to using that same electricity on the grid to power a heat pump that's got, say, a coefficient of three, okay, so average heat pump running, it's five times more efficient to use the heat pump than using the electricity to split out for uh, to produce hydrogen. So now I know that heat pumps and electricity aren't the be all and end all, but I just wonder if you had any thoughts overall about our use of the different fuels and how we, how we, you know, because it's all about primary energy, as I can see, how we mm. how we maximise the impact of that renewable energy that we've produced. So uh, let me take the point on hydrogen first and then maybe come back to this point about renewable electricity and the grid. So they're, they're, they're really important points that you're raising. I mean, de- just to put it in context, and you've, you've hit the nail on the head, Max, in terms of you know, the decarbonization of heat is probably our single biggest challenge in our kind of race to net zero. Um, we've got 20 million homes or there or thereabouts that are connected to the gas grid. And most of those are highly inefficient, some of the most leaky homes across Europe, right? So the first critical priority, whatever route we go down for heat, is that we need to make them more efficient. Because otherwise, um, basically, the scale of the problem just becomes too big. And, we're, we're, and we don't have enough of whatever it is we're going to use um, if we're sort of pouring it out the door. So um, so we've got to make energy efficiency the first fundamental priority. And as you know, that, that requires a, a big, um, significant sort of uh, um, shift in terms of policy around the retrofitting of existing homes. Um, but in terms of this choice between then going down either electrification route in terms of heat pumps and so on, or hydrogen. Um, the, the Committee on Climate Change, which advises government on climate change issues, um, has done some really interesting analysis on this. And, and actually, they found that the cost itself isn't a massive differentiator between those two in large scale, like they've done macro kind of comparisons. Um, but full hydrogen conversion is likely to be quite unwieldy simply because I think to your point, you know, there's just too much hydrogen to be produced. It's, it's kind of almost implausible. It means we need uh, to plan for a much larger range of solutions. Um, so electrification is likely to remain our primary route in their view. And, and uh, you know, we, we absolutely concur with this um, to decarbonizing heat. But we will need hydrogen to provide more flexibility. And um, there, um, you know, the, the important point there is it might be more of a regional role for hydrogen. Um, and that the, the, the process ought to be led by public opinion. So, um, you know, there was a Climate Change Citizens Assembly that was set up last year, uh, which was really interesting stuff. I really recommend people look out for that um, report that was published by that Citizens Assembly. These were people taken from really random sample of society, um, not necessarily with any climate change kind of um, views and, and, and so on. But um, they came up with very equal support, actually, for the different technologies, but felt very strongly that local choice was what was what was important. So, um, you know, the, the likely r- result of that is that the, pro- the probable route is electrification, but with a strong role for hydrogen where local people, uh, you know, are up for it and where the, the regional sort of local, um, you know, infrastructure enables and allows for it. Um, so it's not quite an either or. And I think the industry has been waiting for, is it one or is it the other? 
um, it's yeah. likely to be both. Yeah. Um, can, you just, can you just expand on that point very slightly? So in terms, what would what would that look like where um, regionally hydrogen socially is more acceptable as an as a as a you know the the way to produce heat for example compared to um you know an electrification route i'm just trying to picture what that what that would actually look like in terms of acceptability or why that choice perhaps would be made in terms of a you know economic and viable uh, position regionally I, I mean, I think it's to do with either, um, you know, the, the, the peculiarities and particular characteristics of a local area. You know, there could be um, there could be a, a very strong reason why, uh, whether there's a local industrial um, reason or whether there's, you know, there's renewable, um, you know, for instance, in Scotland, very strong renewable electricity being being produced. So perhaps a, a, a choice in favour of electrification rather than um, hydrogen. Um, I, I think the point is that there isn't a sort of one size fits all for any kind of local community. It could be it could be jobs and skills reason. Um, it could be all sorts of different reasons that would lead us down the route of, you know, in a local um, city or combined authority or, or or indeed a much smaller area where and a sort of neighbourhood um, that one choice is preferred over another. So I think it's this sort of blanket rule approach that is not favoured and probably not in our favour um, because it doesn't allow enough flexibility in the system. Um, but it does reflect, it does relate also to the other point about renewables, which is renewable electricity and your point about the grid. And again, the grid becoming, you know, um, us becoming more and more reliant on um, decentralised, locally produced and generated kind of energy that's perhaps kind of kept within a, uh, you know, a localised system. Um, in terms of electricity. And, and we produced a guidance uh, report last week. Again, lots of people inputted into that. It wasn't a UKGBC view. It's the view of many industry bodies and professionals out there. And it, uh, on specifically sort of, well, really on renewable energy procurement and the use of offsets. Um, and because of the way our energy markets work in the UK, we, for example, we don't necessarily kind of bundle the renewable energy um, obligation, um, you know, credit with or the Rego as it's called, with the actual kilowatt hour of energy. So you could be buying the credits without having actually bought the energy, which basically means you're not adding anything to the grid. And if we're wanting to get to this, uh, you know, 100% grid renewables by a certain date, we need to be adding more and more renewable electricity to the grid. We also need to be super careful about how much we're extra demand we're putting on the grid. Right? If we're going down an electrification route, we're going to need tons more electricity. So we 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 need to be uh, careful that whatever we're procuring is additional. It's adi- it's adding to the capacity, the renewable el- electricity capacity in 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 you know across the country, rather than just being a token that says somewhere someone generated one kilowatt hour of renewable electricity and i've bought the token that that you know that that generate that generator or that supplier provided me with that's not adding to anything um so there's there's there is smoke and mirrors here a little bit with in the way that our marketplace um both in the way that the energy market is um currently structured so that some of this um you know additionality and the the ownership of an energy kind of attribute and, and whether it's renewably sourced or not, uh, it, it's a bit confusing 
And unless you're really careful about exactly, you know, does my um, supplier tick all of those boxes, you might just be buying, um, you know, a, 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 yeah, a renewable tariff that's not that's not adding any good. Um, As you say smoke and mirrors. It's not really what you're getting, what you're what you're asking for is not what you're getting at all. Exactly, um, exactly. So I, I do think that these things, you know, they're quite compli- complex, but they need to be looked at fully. I mean, um, there's only two suppliers at the moment that y- you can credibly buy fully, and this is all in in that guidance report that we published last week. So yes. for those who are interested in it, I would recommend going to that detailed, quite technical report. I don't, um, I don't mind you uh, naming those two suppliers at the moment. That's absolutely fine. Do you know? Can you remember who they are? Um, Ecotricity. Who I'm yes. pleased to buy my home energy from, um, electricity yep. from, and uh, Good Energy. Okay, yep, yep, familiar um, with them. And I, I believe Green Energy are also able to do this and, and possibly provide the actual meters, um, which I'm not sure Good Energy is able to. So um, those three would probably be um, the most credible from an additionality point of view. Um, and it is important for people to recognize this because there's all sorts of products being sold on the, on the marketplace, which, you know, with, with the best intentions, lots of people are buying up and thinking, well, I'm net zero carbon now, but they're actually not. Um, yeah. yeah, I hear it all the time. People are saying, oh, I'm getting 100% renewable electricity. And you're thinking, well, you're, you're actually not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly right. And I, and I think, you know, to, to the point you made right at the start, well, people are bandying this term around a lot. And are sort of self-interpreting what that actually means. So yeah. the devil is frankly in the detail um, in terms of how even how one accounts for what emissions, uh, what you know, what is my footprint. So within this this latest guidance, we've also said you know actually the way in which uh, greenhouse gas accounting uh, works is that you're you're using either um, coefficients to your that are being used, for example, in the app that you referenced, but you're not necessarily, you you can't rely on those necessarily for the uh, supplier or the the tariff that you're buying. There might be a difference between the two. Um, So it's, yeah, you need to look into exactly what what is being done by your supplier, uh, how and why in order to figure out what your footprint actually might be and, and do that work legwork yourself. The system doesn't right. do it for you. Well, the good thing is, what, what I've certainly been noticing is that people are asking the questions now. It's a bit like, um, you know, where you get your produce from, et cetera, et cetera. People are becoming mindful now to try and understand mm-hmm. exactly, um, you know, I often call home heating or you know the heat we generate at home like the hidden our hidden carbon footprint because it is so hidden compared to the high profile things such as flying and the type of car you travel but it's really great to see people asking the questions you know we deal with a lot of um housing associations self-builders developers and the curiosity is definitely there so i think we're going in the right direction Uh, i can't believe how time has flown on this uh, chat already but i've got um quite an expansive question to finish off with and a couple of little um little minutiae ones at the end but um so if we look at buildings and right the way across the uk in terms of how we're going to actually do this and the question really is how do you think the industry right the way across supply chain is actually gearing up in terms of the innovation required to actually achieve this in mm. the timescale set out in this and as you rightly put it in this climate emergency um mm. what's your thoughts on that I have two conflicting thoughts on that. Um, so let me put, put put them to you sort of, 
Yeah, they are slightly conflicting. I think the short answer is not enough, not fast enough, and um, not concertedly enough. Um, is that innovation happening? Um, and the reason for that is perhaps twofold. One is that we do not have a common understanding of where do we need to get to by when. Yes, we know that we need to be net zero carbon by 2050, but for each sector and subsector of the, let's take built environment as a sector, which is super fragmented and really complex, each each subsector within that needs to figure out, well, what's my role on, you know, by when do I need to do what and what, how does that relate to the products and materials I'm buying or the, you know, the, many of the things we've talked about today in terms of energy efficiency standards or heat and, uh, you know, decarbonization of heat and so on. And what can I rely on by when? So we're not taking a system wide view of it, which means it's really, really hard, I think, for that innovation to happen fast enough and in the right direction. And the other is that point about fragmentation is another reason why it's not happening fast enough, which is that we are, um, you know, we, we're all going at this in our different silos in a way in, in um, what is a very fragmented sector. So we need we need unprecedented um, amounts of fairly radical collaboration to make this happen. And, and that's where the innovation, I think, really needs needs to happen. Um, the flip side argument to that is that we are seeing an extraordinary kind of proliferation of, you know, new startups and innovative ideas and solutions um, to some of these common challenges. Um, and and that's prompted us at UKGBC to say, right, we need to focus more strategically on the solutions aspect, but within which I would include you know, a lot of the innovative solutions, but not just technological solutions or new building materials or what have you, albeit those are kind of super needed as well, but also different ways in which we contract, different ways in which we lease, different um, forms of financing. Um, you know, innovative business models, um, all of these things, you know, we sort of need to, to my point earlier, need to change the way we do pretty much everything forevermore. So um, radical changes in how we're planning, constructing, designing, operating our buildings, all of those need new solutions. Um, so we're trying to um, facilitate some of that collaboration and co-creation amongst a very wide ranging value chain to come up with some of these innovative um, you know, uh, solutions is, is, is probably the best, uh, the best term, but, you know, interventions or ways of working together. Um, and, I, and I do get excited when I see some of that. We've got, um, we're building a whole new section on our website, which will be a solutions library, like a solutions portal um, with, uh, and, you know, you can link that to innovation very easily because innovation tends to happen around a challenge. So, you know, some in large organizations will come together and say, well, we're really struggling with this particular problem let's say it's um how do we improve we, we ran a challenge on this actually last year you know how do we improve our existing buildings to achieve net zero operational carbon um what are the solutions out there and then lots of people piled in and said and this is all again uh, available publicly but you know saying oh, well we've got this new technology or we've tried this um uh you know new form of contracting performance contracting with with our facilities managers or you know Every, a whole load of different things come through. Some of them worked, some of them didn't, but we need to accelerate access to those, but also share the learning. And it's also, you know, it's risk-taking stuff. We're, we're not a risk. This is a very risk-averse sector, construction, you know, and, and um, uh, property development and, and real estate is, is risk-averse. So innovation by definition is taking risks, investing in R&D, 
um, you know, and, and failing quite often. Um, so it's a whole different mindset, I think, which, which we're, you know, starting to, starting to move and there's some exciting new ideas and ventures coming through, but they're just not being lapped up enough, um, fast enough because, you know, the incumbents tend to be a, a bit concerned that, oh, well, that's all a bit too new and untested and I'm not sure I can go down that route. So just to finish off, Judy, that's, um, I mean, it's an incredible amount of information you've, um, you've given us. I've, I've really learned a lot over the last half an hour or so. Where can, um, where can our listeners go for further information, firstly? So I presume just Google UK Green Building Council. Do you know the website off by heart? Is it? Yeah, ukgbc.org um, is the website. And there's, there's a huge amount of resources on our website, but we also point off to lots of places um, elsewhere. Um, and, you know, of course, government websites also have uh, have some good stuff on them. Um, it really depends what the kind of exam question is, you know, whether it's new or existing and, and whether it's climate and, and energy or whether it's, you know, um, circular economy and resource efficiency. So we categorize information on our website according to both the, the impact area and this sort of stage in the life cycle of the asset, um, which might be a helpful place to start. Okay, so depending on who they are, whether you know they're where they are in the specification chain. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's something for everybody on the website in terms of where they mm-hmm. are and what and what they can do and how they can support this journey to net zero. Yeah, and it, it will require absolutely all of us. So, um, a bit of a call to action there that you know wherever your listeners are in that supply chain, that they they need to reflect on what their particular role is. Um, because this isn't the uh, domain of just a few people over there who are talking sustainability and carbon. It's it's pretty much all of us doing something different. So, Julie, in terms of net zero by 2050, what should people do now? Well, every single person could tackle their own home, their residence, um, whether that's through energy efficiency or procuring renewables or um, just trying to achieve net zero carbon in their own domestic context. But and anyone working within the supply chain of the built environment also has a role to play uh, through their organization, whether that's designing, planning, constructing, uh, investing in, managing buildings. Um, there's an enormous amount to be done and uh, no stone left unturned. So we have to all be in this together and um, no one should go it alone. I think that's a really good point that everybody has got a part to play in this journey to 2050. Yeah, it's it's really all about action now rather than words. Um, and we we just need to get on with it. And the solutions are out there, but we need to get on with it. Absolutely. We're, we're all in this together. Correct. Julie, that's been absolutely fascinating. We've covered a lot of ground, um, and uh, maybe maybe uh, have you back a, again in um, you know a year or so's time. Maybe see how we're doing. Maybe it could be yeah. a, a, a regular slot that you come back and uh, give us a report, see how the UK is doing. But it's been an absolute pleasure, and we really appreciate your time for coming on to the podcast. Obviously, you're you're a very busy uh, busy person. So thank you, Julie. My pleasure. Really nice to talk to you. Great, thank you. So there you have it. UK Net Zero, Buildings for Sustainable Future. A huge thanks to my guests, Julie Hiragoyan, for coming to the show. Thank you, Julie. And thank you for listening. And please share, subscribe, rate and review the Ikadan Serious About Sustainability podcast. Until next time, goodbye.